can you have an energy transition without the energy industry? It doesn't make any sense if you if you exclude the oil and gas industry from the conversation around the energy transition, right? Um, we are going to be part and parcel of that, as you said after the after the debate on your in your post online. We're not going anywhere. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Locked In Companies, and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Energy and Transition podcast. This is Leslie Beyer, your host. We're recording in the Fletcher Azul Tequila studio in Houston again today. It's mid-October, starting to get a little bit cooler outside, thankfully, in Houston. Um, I want to thank our sponsors, PISA, Galtway Marketing, Locked in Global Energy, and Marine before we get going um, and introduce our guests. So today we are joined by Gabriel Rio. He's the president and CEO of Milestone Environmental Services. Um, he is also on the advisory board of PISA. I've been so pleased to be able to work with you on our leadership team, Gabriel. Um, it's It's been about two years since you've been on. I think that's about right. Yeah, okay. it's been a lot of fun working with PISA. I've really enjoyed that. Well, I have appreciated your leadership so much. And I, you know, after I listened to your podcast on Oilfield 360 with Josh and David, and y'all started talking about some of the things that Milestone Stone is involved in and, and a lot about your background. Um, I really wanted to dig deeper into the entire ESG element that you have around your mission. Um, you know, as I understand it, the entire mission of Milestone is really to reduce the environmental impact of oil-filled waste. Yeah, that's right. And so that to me is just an incredibly exciting and interesting piece of OFS, right? I mean, the whole point of this podcast is really to talk talk about a decarbonization, you know, efforts within oil and gas, but be everything that, that the companies within our sector and broadly across the industry are doing to reduce our environmental footprint, certainly around decarbonization. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk about this today. And um, I thought maybe we could start just a little bit with your background and, and then we'll kind of transition into Milestone. I know y'all talked about that a lot. Um, on the last podcast, but you and I have known each other for probably about 10 years now. For for the first half of that, I only knew you as Mona's husband. <laughs> That's right. Which is funny. Well, and everybody so. in the neighborhood just knows us as the guys that walk, the, the people that walk the big dogs, Exactly. Right? <laughs> and we were just chatting beforehand. You're two great Danes. I mean, it, you and Mona look like y'all are walking those horses <laughs> down the street. They're just such big goofballs. They're a lot of fun. Oh, uh, it's great. It's great. But well, first of all, Leslie, I mean, th thank you for having me on the podcast. And um, I'm really glad you're doing this podcast. I was excited when I heard the title topic of this, uh, of, of the Energy and Transition podcast, because I know a lot of folks that are out there working on energy transition issues. And for most people, when they talk about energy transition, they're talking about kind of a shift to electric vehicles, or they're talking about um, they're talking about going toward wind or solar or other fuels away from oil and gas. But the reality is there's so much going on. And I think more of the impactful things that are happening in our industry are happening within the oil and gas industry that's driving decarbonization. Um, and so I'm really glad that you're bringing those things to light. Um, I've got a few friends that uh, and uh, that um, actually have a fund that is entirely focused on industrial decarbonization. And they hear from their investors all the time that, gosh, we want you to kind of stay away from fossil fuels. But the reality is this is where the, this is where the real work is happening. So I'm glad you're bringing it to light. I appreciate me on. Well, I appreciate so much you saying that. And it's just, I think it's an important message right now, especially we were just talking about the recent 
recent presidential debates and how there are candidates that would like to get rid of fossil fuels because there is a broad misunderstanding about what we're doing. But the fact of the matter is we are where the rubber meets the road. And all of the efforts towards a cleaner future, really, a lot of those are being accomplished within oil and gas. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and look, the stark reality is the global economy doesn't work today without oil and gas. And oil and gas has such a huge role in everything that we do. And I think, unfortunately, our younger generation quite often doesn't understand that and they don't see that. And so it's very easy for them to start vilifying the oil and gas community. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate because there's so much good work that's happening here. Um, and I think we as, a, as an industry have to do a better job of getting that story out and educating people about it. Um, but uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff, and I think a lot a lot at stake from a policy perspective. I think both sides of you know both sides of the political spectrum have have um, have good ideas and bad ideas. Um, but I think there's there's a you know vilifying the entire industry and trying to just you know trying to ditch the entire oil and gas industry is certainly not the solution, because then the global economy would just fall apart. So we need to be part of the answer in order to, to help the world move toward a lower carbon future. I agree with that. And you said it in a very nice way that there's good and bad <laughs> ideas on both sides. I see a just a very broad misunderstanding of what yep. this global energy ecosystem is on both sides. Yep. Um, and, and it is. It's up to us to educate. We talk about this a lot. You know, trade associations, I know, do what they can. And, and you know, advocacy folks and lobbyists at our companies work on these issues, too. But as far as really promoting how critical we are to modern life, how critical we are even to renewables. Yep. You know, that's right. We've just got to get that message out. So I'm I'm glad that we can talk about it today. So you want to just give me a little bit more background on Milestone and kind of the business, um, the sure. business model and what y'all do in oilfield waste. Yeah. So um, Milestone is an oilfield waste management company. We've been around since 2014. Um, we manage um, a bunch of different kinds of oil field waste streams. So when you drill an oil and gas well, you're going to use drilling fluids, water-based mud, oil-based mud. Uh, you'll generate drill cuttings, which is the rock shavings and the dirt that comes out of the hole that you're making. Um, there's also, you know, when you're completing a well, there's flowback um, in the production stream. There's water, but there's also tank bottoms, which is kind of the sludge that builds up in the bottom of production tanks. There's a lot of companies out there that deal with the water side of the waste stream. Um, and I know you guys have talked about that, and that's a pretty substantial focus for the industry. Milestone really focuses on the tougher stuff, um, the stuff that um, they can't you know, be injected into a saltwater disposal well. It's the oil-based mud, water-based mud, the cuttings, the tank bottoms, the, the waste that comes from the pits that, um, that are on site. That's really what Milestone does. And so you know, we've been, um, and I've been in this line of work since about 2004, so the last, I guess, 16 years now. Um, but the, the whole reason Milestone exists and companies like ours exist is really to help mitigate the environmental impact of the oil and gas industry. Um, and we've been, we as an industry have been building the infrastructure close to where the, you know, close to where oil and gas is being, you know, where drilling and exploration is happening right now to allow the industry to, to, um, to do that in a more sustainable way. Excellent. And so what are some of the ways that oil-filled waste is remediated currently? Yeah. So there's, there are, whole bunch of different options. Um, Milestone primarily works um, in the Permian and the Eagleford today. Um, uh, we've, uh, we've historically had operations in the Haynesville as well. Um, in the state, in the United States, in a lot of states, uh, it, well, in the United States, the um, regulation for oil and gas is, uh, oil and gas waste is ceded to the states. And so you have different regulations in every state in the United States. Um, and so um, in a lot of states, there's still on-site methods of disposals that operators can use. So they can take um, their, their waste drilling fluids and their drill cuttings, and they can put them in a reserve pit. 
which is a pit that's dug behind the drilling rig, and um, and the waste is circulated through that uh, through that pit to help them reuse it during the process. They can also bury it in that pit at the end of the at the end of the process, or they can land farm it, which is a process where they take that waste, they do some pretreatment, but then they spread it out on the ranch land or the farmland behind the lease, in the idea that if you spread it thin enough. Um, then you know it's not going to exceed certain uh, criteria and it's not going to become a problem. Um, those processes have been in place for a long, long time. I mean, that's kind of how the oil and gas industry started. And to be honest, they were necessary decades ago because there just wasn't any other option. You're, you're generating a lot of a high volume of waste when you're drilling these really big holes. And so um, there just wasn't the infrastructure to do anything else with them. Um, but over the last uh, over the last several decades, you know, we've been putting in place new facilities to be able to handle these things. Um, at Milestone, we use two processes. Um, we use a slurry injection process to manage the waste fluids. So, you know, the oil-based mud, the water-based mud, the tank bottoms. This stuff is dirty fluid that's generally contaminated with oil and with salt. Um, that material we're going to inject back into the earth um, at, at, at slurry injection sites that we have throughout these basins. And then for the solids, which are tougher to inject, you can inject those as well if you do the right process. But for the solids, we've decided that oil field waste landfills um, and kind of specific landfills that are designed just for these materials are the best way to go. So those are the two processes that Milestone uses. And that's regulated, you said, at the state level. It is. So each operator at their different wells and their leases, they're going to be able to decide what they want to do. Some some of these things are not necessarily best practice, but they are you know, yeah. approved. They're That's right. So, yeah, you know, I think, um, I think the, in, in the state of Texas, they are allowed to use reserve pits and they're allowed to, to use land farming. Those methods are compliant, compliant. Um, with the state law. Um, the Texas Railroad Commission is the organization that regulates oil and gas in the state of Texas. They have taken primacy on, um, from the EPA on regulating these types of waste streams. So, um, uh, those types of methods are compliant as long as you can get the landowners to agree with it. And it's written into a lot of oil, older oil and gas leases that you can do these processes. Um, but uh, for a lot of the customers that we work with, they understand that compliance is not necessarily the bar. Right? We're not we're not in this industry just trying to get away with the bare minimum of what what gets over the regulatory threshold. We're trying to actually do the right thing and go above and beyond that, and trying to avoid do do you know, have processes that avoid soil contamination, avoid avoid groundwater contamination. And that's the important part, A, about ESG and B, about the image of the industry, because yeah. just trying to be compliant, you know, is where we get into issues in the media on, you know, flaring and sometimes frack. Oh, and that's right. So, I mean, how how do you motivate above and beyond compliance so, in yeah, a market so, like so, this? Yeah. The, 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 uh, I think the industry as a whole understands that compliance is not good enough. Quite often, the regu you know, regulations are slow to catch up with technology and slow to catch up with what the industry is doing sometimes. But you know, we talk about uh, when we talk about this issue to our customers, it's really an enterprise risk management issue. And you know, I talked to David DeRote about this a lot too. Um, but this is an enterprise risk management issue. If you utilize some of these on-site methods of disposal, if you bury your waste in a reserve pit on site, it is more likely to contaminate the soil, to contaminate groundwater. And then, and then at the end of the day, you know, five years after you drilled this well and you've moved on, if that landowner comes back and their plow you know, gets, you know, they're, they're farming and their plow gets into that reserve pit and they dig up some oily waste, they're going to have that operator come back and remediate that. And if you have to go back and remediate an old reserve pit, oh, that cost is going to be 10, 20 times as much as it would have cost to just dispose of it in the first place. So, you know, it's really a, it's really a liability management issue for our customers. It's not a liability they can really insure against. So they have to make a decision of, do they want to spend the money up front to make sure they dispose of the waste properly uh, or to, to make sure they use the best practices to, to mitigate their risk on the front end? Or they, do they want to take the risk that they have may, maybe have a cleanup 
five, 10, 20 years later. And can they put this into their ESG reporting? I mean, surely this kind of activity makes its way into sustainability reports. Yeah. So it's well, you know, sustainability reports in the oil and gas industry are so new that I think a lot of our customers are um, trying to figure out what to put in their sustainability mm -hmm. reports. And so we find that they are focused on a few things. They're focused on they're focused on emissions. They're focused on water management, um, and uh, and and uh, and they're focused on land use. Those are the kind of the three big topics. Okay. And so when we talk to our customers, it's a waste management by itself is hasn't become a primary focus of if, um, on any of the sustainability reports in our cust for our customers. But I think they are, you know, uh, but it could, I think it it needs to have greater prominence in, in, in their thinking, um, in my view. I mean, obviously I'm biased because this is my industry. Right. Um, but, you know, when we, when we kind of pitch that to our customers, say, look, you can reduce your land usage if you're, um, which does make their sustainability report. And you can also reduce your emissions. And so we can talk about the carbon footprints of right. those different options too. But they, they can reduce their land impact by you know, not land farming, not impacting so much ground by spreading their waste out on site. So they can reduce their footprint up front, um, reduce their land usage, and then also reduce their carbon footprint pretty substantially if they're using the right processes. So we talked about that a little bit earlier, and I want to get into it. You know, this technology that you can, I mean, similar to carbon capture, you're not taking it out of the air, but you're taking it out of the ground, about out of the dirt, and then you're yeah. able to re-inject that in a similar way to carbon capture. That's right. So um, yeah, Milestone, we are taking all these different, so I'm talking about our slurry injection process in particular. We're taking a whole bunch of different waste streams, right? And a lot of those waste streams are oily. So we're taking uh, waste oil and on average, the, you know, the material that we inject across our network of facilities, about 5% hydrocarbons. Um, and that material um, is, it, that is waste oil that's not easily recovered or recycled. It's too dirty and in order to recycle it or recover it, you'd almost have to use as much energy and burn enough, burn as much fuel or recover it as the oil is worth in the first place. So, um, so instead of um, burning a lot of fuel or recover this oil, which actually has a you know, pretty um, big impact in the wrong direction on emissions, we just capture this fluid, we, we blend it in, into our slurries, and then we re-inject it back into the earth. So this material is now you know, taken away from the surface, and it's re-injected 7,000 feet on average you know, down below the earth's surface, where it's you know, separated from groundwater or, or the kind of usable biosphere by like a mile of rock. So it's a very secure disposal method, and these waste hydrocarbons are being pulled out of the environment and put back into the earth. The, and so that results in a really meaningfully negative carbon footprint for our operations. So we did the math and, and last year, um, you know, uh, across our network of facilities, milestones, carb, total carbon footprint, even, you know, considering the offsets of, you know, you know, the power we use and all that kind of stuff has positive emissions, but we're sequestering so much um, carbon, um, that our total carbon footprint is negative 225,000 tons of CO2 equivalent per year, which is about three times the car you know, three times the carbon footprint of Rice University, um, just to kind of give you a little right. bit of, um, of, um, of perspective on that. Well, that to me is one of the most widely misunderstood, you know, concepts in energy transition and what these oil and gas companies are able to do with some of these technologies. We're not buying, you know, this is not buying a carbon credit no. for energy. This is actually removing carbon, you know, yes. as opposed to a tech company, for example, that says, oh, look, we're going to be, you know, carbon neutral here on this you know, data storage facility. Sure. No, you're not. You're buying carbon credits. Yeah. And That's chances different. are they're buying carbon credits from somebody like us that is actually, you know, that is actually doing the work to put the carbon back into the ground, right? So, you know, we are literally taking carbon out of the environment and putting it back into the earth. So it is direct. It is carbon capture and sequestration. It's not the kind of carbon capture and sequestration that you generally think of where you're pulling CO2 out of the air, but is absolutely carbon capture and absolutely permanent carbon sequestration by putting this material back underground. Um, and you know, the and particularly if you look at the alternatives for how these wastes could be handled, if you took that same waste and you land farmed it, for example, if you, you know, spread it out on, on farmland, those same hydrocarbons are going to be exposed to the air, 
they're going to be exposed to sunlight. Those longer, you know, those longer hydrocarbon chains are going to break down into shorter chains and they're going to volatilize. Most of that material ultimately ends up in the air. And so it's got a very meaningfully, um, sometimes talking about carbon fo uh, footprints can be weird because positive and negative is backwards, but it has a bad impact on your emissions when you're land farming this material. You're really just putting volatile organic compounds back into the air. But if you can instead capture those hydrocarbons, put them back into the ground, then you can have a, a very meaningfully a positive impact on the environment and, and decarbonize the oil field pretty directly. Well, my impression is that the operators that are playing the long game yeah. are going to be all up in that and that maybe some of the smaller independent yeah. <laughs> operators who <laughs> may not you know, have an idea to be on this lease for the next 15 years yeah. might not. So how do you manage that in your customer base? How do you make that attractive, especially in this awfully tight market. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, um, so I, again, I've been in this industry for about six or 15, 16 years, and I've seen a pretty steady progression over time. And it's not, you know, it has its ebbs and flows for sure. Um, but we see a pretty steady progression of adoption of these offsite disposal methods, of, of adoption of these best practices. Um, and And generally the trend is, and it's not true in every case, but generally the trend is the bigger operators are going to be a little bit more concerned about long-term liability. They're probably going to be, they're more likely to ca be calculating their carbon footprint to begin with. And so they're going to, they're going to try to uh, um, employ these best practices. Um, whereas some of the smaller operators, particularly historically, when you had a, some smaller operators that might just be trying to prove up some acreage so they can flip it to somebody bigger, they weren't in it for the long term. And so those issues weren't as important to them. Um, and we do see a variety of behaviors from our customers. Um, you know, we, we do really, really well um, with big customers. You know, kind of, and so we're, we're happy right now when we see consolidation in the oil field. We see those smaller customers being bought by bigger customers. Generally, that means for us that, you know, the operators are getting more and more responsible as these companies consolidate and get bigger and think more about risk management and long-term liability. So that's a good thing for us. Um, but yeah, it's not every operator uses best practice every time. And so, you know, that's one of the areas where, you know, regulation is, and you certainly don't want to over-regulate the industry, but over time regulation needs to catch up to where the industry is, right? And so it's, it's not, uh, regulation can have the effect of leveling the playing field because if there are certain operators that might be paying a little bit extra and it's really not very much more, but if they're paying a little bit extra to do the right thing, um, and then they're competing against folks that aren't um, that aren't spending that money. Regulation can be one of those things that can help lay, level that playing field. For sure. I mean, we could be talking about flaring right now. We could be. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. or not. But I mean, it's a lot of it's the same argument, and it's. I feel like we're always trying to catch up. That's right. right. And and that's the other thing we tell our customers because we we see in in times like this, you know, and we're in 2020, right? It's um, the oil field is going through a massive contraction. The um, the demand destruction because of because of coronavirus has been really profound in our industry, um, and so cost pressure is really really acute for a lot of our customers, and particularly the you know the folks in the field, you know they want they're they're trying everything that they can do to cut costs, and sometimes the folks in the field don't necessarily have the same longer term perspective as the folks in corporate that are having to manage things like their asset retirement obligations and their longer term liabilities around this. So they're, um, you know, so you can see a little bit of a backslide. You can say, oh gosh, I don't want to pay the waste disposal guy. So let's just keep this waste on site and let's bury it. That's going to be cheaper. Well, it might be cheaper today, but the reality is it's going to be more expensive later if you if you cut that corner today. Also, if you plan for it up front and what we tell our customers, if you plan to dispose of this waste, and you plan to drill what they call closed loop drilling. If you plan for that up front, then you can actually save a lot of other elements of cost in your drilling program that gets that a lot, that really balances that out. So it's really not very much incremental expense for our customers if they plan it right. And the bigger companies understand how to do that. 
Well, as long as we're talking about regulation, I, I want to talk about that more. And then I want to get to capital markets because yeah. that's just so much of your background and, um, you know, it, it's impactful. Um, so as far as the regulatory environment, it everything that your business does, since it's all regulated at the state level, you're dealing with, you know, different regulations, obviously, um, across the board. So how do you manage that? I know we've worked with your team on comments to EPA for federal sure. regulatory and legislation. So you're, you have obviously a compliance team that has to deal with federal and state. So how do you manage that? Cause your team is about a hundred right now, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We've, 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 um, um, we shrunk down to about 100 this year. The, the fortunate thing in our business is we're not very people intensive. Um, so uh, we, we have 100 people that do a heck of a lot of um, heck of a lot of, heck of a lot of work. But um, yeah, it's complicated uh, because there's different rules in different places. Um, most of what we do today is in the state of Texas. Um, and so we're dealing with federal regulations, but more than anything, dealing with the state of Texas. Uh, we're also um, uh, working in New Mexico. And so you know, getting in New Mexico is a little bit newer for us. So getting to understand uh, New Mexico rules and that it's a it's a whole different it's a whole different set of rules and regulations and a whole different process and a different pace that the regulators move at uh, in the state of New Mexico that we're um, that we've had to learn. So we have a compliance team that um, is working on um you know, that works on maintaining compliance and make sure all the reporting is right. But we're effectively using the same processes in both states today. Um, and it took, it, it takes a little bit of work to um, work with the higher level people at the regulatory agencies to make sure that they understand our process before we start. And then it, and then it becomes more of a rote uh, compliance issue, but it's um, you know, we we spend a lot of time thinking about and worrying about um, and working with our regulators because we want to make sure that at Milestone that we have a collaborative relationship with our regulators. We don't ever want to have an adversarial uh, relationship with a regulatory body because at the end of the day, we're in business to help our customers be compliant and help our customers um, uh, manage that liability. So we can't we don't we don't ever want to be in a position to be at odds with our regulators. Yes. Or your customers. I mean, or our that, customers. That's you right. know, <laughs> and inherently that happens. I mean, that's my business all day long is, you know, advocating on behalf of OFS and helping to educate lawmakers and, and regulators um, on what we do and what it means. And so that that can impact legislation in a positive way so that regulations are effective and not onerous, you know, so that they're helpful and don't detract. Um, that's right. At some times like from safety and things like that. Yep. We've had to deal very little with the federal government, but I think that's going to start increasing in importance, depending on what happens next week. Right. right. Um, so as we're sitting here today, we've got a presidential election coming in a few days time. Probably by the time you publish this, everyone will know the outcome. Um, but you know, depending on how the election goes next week, I think the federal government may become may start to play a bigger role. Um, and, you know, I think um, our industry has kind of uh, has taken a back seat when it comes to talking to federal regulators. So I think we're going to have to start engaging more at the federal level um, to uh, to make sure that the regulations that are put in place um, are something that makes, like you said, that makes sense, that are helpful, that serve to level the playing field and encourage best practice, but aren't so onerous that they end up just you know, having the effect of shutting down our industry, because that's not, that's not what anybody, that's not in anybody's interest. For sure. And, you know, I think to an important part of this, and you mentioned it when we sat down, some of it, I mean, it, this, this election matters for sure, but the train has left the station on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And so many regulations right now, especially around environmental justice, um, you know, checking each project up in the Northeast, sure. um, you know, for the entire full downstream stream outcomes of those before permits are um, issued, I think we'll continue to see that. And so as as things ramp up, I think at the federal level, I think the states have already started and um, that train has left the station and we're just going to have to all. Yeah. Well, I think I think the trend, you know, the macro trend over the last, you know, 20, 30 years has been for tightening and improving and raising our environmental standards. Right. And so um, from time to time, you may have a regulation or two pulled back um, as that makes sense. Um, but 
I think e even if you have regulations pulled back today, the reality is if you look ahead 20 years from now, we're going to, we're going to, you know, the expectation is going to be for a higher, higher environmental standard than what we're operating at today. We need to be continuously improving that. Um, and that's been the overall trend, macro trend um, in regulations too. So we need to make sure we stay ahead of it. I think our industry has, um, the oil and gas industry has um, so often, like you said, been playing catch up. Um, you know, kind of responding to whatever pre environmental pressure the media is trying to throw at it, right? First it was fracking, and then it was, um, you know, protests around pipelines. Um, lately it's been, you know, flaring has been the, the big issue. Um, and, you know, there are things that we can do better, particularly on flaring. I think a lot of the fracking discussion was misplaced. There are things that we can do better on, on all of these things, um, but we need to get to the point where we're being more proactive and just less reactive around, around these environmental For issues. For sure. The Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oilfield services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition. Please join us at PISA.org. And all of these companies operate globally. I, I mean, I cannot let this topic end without saying out loud, you know, the U.S., we have this, the tightest regulatory regime in the world. Oh, that's you know, absolutely true. We produce oil and gas more cleanly, safer. But, you know, if we have regulations that try and ban fracking or, you know, don't allow permitting for pipelines anymore, that the hydrocarbons are still going to be developed and they're going to be developed, you know, in Russia and the, there's going to be a pipeline. We were talking, I had Dr. Ken Medlock um, from Rice University, the Baker Institute, and we were talking about how, you know, as oil and gas development globally increases in a, a lot of these national oil companies, there, it's just not produced in the same way that it is here in the United States. And so to remove production from the U.S. only pushes it That's globally, right. and it will therefore be less environmentally sound. Yeah. And if you particularly if you think about it from a carbon perspective, I mean, it, it is not true that the carbon that we emit in Texas just affects Texas's climate, right? It's the carbon that's emitted globally that affects our global climate, right? So if we, um, I totally agree with that, that if we, if we end um, oil production in Texas, that means more oil production is going to come from Saudi Arabia. Um, if Venezuela ever can get its act together, you know, places like that, that's where the oil production is going to have to come from because it's not going to stop. The global economy is too dependent on oil and gas. And if you just stop it here, it's going to have to come from somewhere and is going to come from overseas. And I've been overseas and I've seen some of the oil field waste issues that some of these, com you know, com some of these countries are dealing with. And they have, you know, there are um, oil fields in in Nigeria, in Saudi Arabia, in Venezuela that are um, that I've seen that are um, large swaths of area that need to be remediated and cleaned up, um, and the practices just not are not as tight, and there's not the expectation um, for operating in the same kind of manner that we expect in the United States. So um, and we, the U.S. is already at a little bit of a, dis a disadvantage because we expect the operators to spend more money operating here. We expect them to be cleaner uh, when they're operating in the United States. And so they're already at a little bit of a competitive disadvantage because they're competing for the same price in the same barrel as oil coming out of Saudi Arabia or, or other places in the Middle East. But we, we expect our, our, our operators to operate to a higher standard. So you know, I think that's encouraging the whole world to get and go in that direction is a, is a good thing. Um, but. I agree. That's um, I think the the larger, broader topic is that the non OECD countries, all the developing nations, they're going to be have to be the ones that really take on the mantle of decarbonization. Yep. And with population growth in China and India and across Asia, it, it's just it's not happening there yet. Eighty percent, right. you know, of the coal fired power plants are being built in China every day. Right. Um, and we're squabbling over these little bits here in the U.S. and we're doing it well here. That's right. Um, so. And so we need to continue to lead, right? And we need to, we need to, um, I think we shouldn't let down our standards here. 
right? We need to continue to operate to the best standard we can. We need to continue to improve our environmental impact um, while continuing to produce a heck of a lot of energy, right? So if we can, and then we need to develop those best practices here and continue to lead the rest of the world and, and try to bring them along with us. Well, you mentioned, you know, it takes a little more money to develop here. So let's talk about capital markets and the fact that we just don't have access to them right now. Um, A lot of ESG investors, you know, just really staying away from the space. Uh, Do you think that we, as demand returns, as the market gets better in the second half of 21, do we start to see a little more interest? What does that look like? I think it takes some time, is, is in in my view. I think that the unfortunate thing is that you know, our our industry um, has done a pretty good job of destroying capital um, over the last um, over the last ten years or so, um, and particularly coming out of the cycle in two thousand and fourteen, there was a lot of value destruction um, because the oil price was high for a long time, encouraged a lot of overbuilding, a lot of overcapitalization of the industry here. And then when it crashed, a lot of capital was destroyed just as a bunch of folks were piling into the piling into the market. Um, and then as we were starting to recover from that um, and the and the um, the capital markets were saying, gosh, I want to stay away from oil and gas because it's just hasn't been a good return on capital. Just as we were starting to recover that and kind of prove that we could generate returns, COVID hit us, and then we just proved everybody right. <laughs> right? So all these, all, I think, uh, when you look at the folks that are left on Wall Street, there's just not a lot of people up there that are covering OFS companies. You know, the analysts are gone. They, the, the the people that are up there don't understand the oil and gas industry very well. And so I think what we we're, we're going to have to see is um, we're going to have to see real. Um, and I hate to say this, we're going to, have to see real capital discipline. We're going to have to see real, you know, good returns on capital that become impossible to ignore. Um, and that's going to take a few years to get there. I don't think it's a twenty twenty one issue. I don't think it's a twenty twenty two issue. I think it takes a little bit longer to get capital really pouring back into the oil field. But once it gets to the point where the oil field is growing, the oil field is generating returns, I think, and, and, and that will come. We, we've seen these cycles come and go. That Those returns will get back to where they need to be. Um, the oil industry is pretty good at figuring out how to do that. The capital will come back. Um, and I think we, do, we need to do two things. One is we need to generate the returns. And two, we need to do a better job of just telling people what we're doing to decarbonize. Because right now, and we, we see this issue even more acutely at Milestone because we're not only fossil fuel oriented, um, which kind of you know, puts a big X um, for a lot of ESG oriented investors. Gosh, we're waste too. That sounds kind of icky and dirty, double X, right? And so, uh, which just makes me, if I had any hair, I'd pull it out <laughs> because the, you know, the reality is we're doing so much and that, that that's really all we do every day is work to mitigate environmental impacts of energy production. And so if you want, um, if you really want to be putting your capital to in a place that's going to make an impact, you give it to folks that are actually doing the work. But a lot of people don't in the capital markets just don't know enough to get that deep into the oil and gas industry right now. So we've got to take our time, generate the returns, stay, keep to our knitting and, and tell our story. That's such a great way to put it. I mean, I feel like I'm beating my head up against the wall a lot too. Um, you know, when I talk about everything that these companies are doing to get us to decarbonization and how, yeah. like we said, it's different than other companies buying carbon credits. Yeah. Um, and two, I think in addition to capital discipline, at some point, right, the rubber has got to meet the road and people are ultimately going to have to realize that hydrocarbons have a role even in the renewable supply chain. And if we want to move to renewables on a dime, which is A, impossible, but B, even if we could, we'd still have to have hydrocarbons in the supply chain. Oh, absolutely. And and so at some point, rubber's going to meet the road there. And in the meantime, we've been working hard to have capital discipline and it's all just going to come rushing back, right? Yep, that's right. I mean, you can't you can't build a Tesla without hydrocarbons. No. Right? And the reality is your Tesla is mostly powered by coal. 
because that's where most because of the you're power, plugging it into because the station. you're plugging it into the wall, and mm-hmm. that's where most of the power is coming from in the United States. So the hydrocarbon the hydrocarbon economy isn't going anywhere. Um, and even if we shift over to electric vehicles, the hydrocarbon economy is still going to be here, and it's still going to be fueling everything. Right. And the rare earth minerals that go into the batteries, right? China holds eighty percent of that. So depending on what happens to foreign policy, yep. You know, there's some real supply chain risk there. What about cobalt in Congo? Oh, that's that's right. I mean, so you talk about ESG, right? And so, what what is what's the social impact of mining cobalt in the Congo? You know, and and where is the cobalt going to come from to build all these batteries that are going to go into all these electric vehicles? Where's the lithium going to come from? There's not enough supply of those rare earth minerals. Like you said, China has a big chunk of them. And the places where they're being mined right now are horrible from a human rights perspective. So um, there's a lot of work to do. And I think that there's a... You know, um, there's a perception that electric vehicles are just, you know, the godsend from a uh, from an environmental perspective, but they've got their own issues too. And not that I'm anti-electric vehicle, I'm really not. But you just have to recognize that there's no perfect solution. Just plugging it into the wall doesn't mean the electricity just comes from the wall. That's the case, right? Is I'm not against renewables at all. I believe that the, every every form of energy is important to the mix, and that's yep. why we just we cannot separate oil and gas from this answer. You know that that's really going to power the world. We have all the engineers. We understand scale. We understand infrastructure. You know, you talked before we sat down a lot about infrastructure and how that's growing in the waste space. Yep. Um, you know that that doesn't go away. That doesn't turn on a dime. Right. Um, and, and it's all about the right balance. And it's about regionally what makes sense. Yep. There are places in sub-Saharan Africa where solar, I'm sure, makes sense 100% all day long. Right. But not everywhere. It's That's not right. a one-size-fits-all. Well, I mean, just if you look in, in, across the United States, right, I've got some friends that are in the solar industry, too. And and you know, they do a lot more business in California than they do in Texas. And it's not because the Californians are so much greener. Um, they're, they're economic animals just like, a Tex- just like Texans are. But the reality is electricity is a heck of a lot more expensive in California. And so that it actually, they, they get a good cost savings by putting solar panels on their roofs. If I could get a good cost savings on power by putting solar panels on my roof, I'd have solar panels on my roof. But in Texas, the, 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 um, the economics just aren't there yet because we've got, and partially because, you know, we've got such cheap energy coming from natural gas and all the other uh, from, from coming from our industry. And those economics matter. They really do. Um, and they matter globally. You know, there's 3 billion people without access to reliable electricity. Yep. Are they less deserving of, you know, those little girls not having to walk to get water all day? Wouldn't it be great not. if they could be in school? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's our, it's our, um, it's our duty as an industry, not just as an industry, but as a global society to make sure that we're providing that energy and trying to bring those people along and trying to give them the, the resources that they need to, you know, to get out of poverty and can, can, can come up that economic ladder. And the oil and gas industry is the way to do that. So um, we should be continuing to encourage whatever kind of innovation that we can to decarbonize and try to do that as quickly as we can. But the reality is if we just try to vilify the oil and gas industry, we're going to be wasting our time on solutions that aren't ready to fit the bill. And we don't, if you really believe that climate change is an issue, if you really believe that we need to act to decarbonize our economy to mitigate the impacts of climate change, then gosh, we don't really have time to waste on vilifying the oil and gas industry on and and we're and, and spending our energy on solutions that are never going to work. We need to make sure that everybody's on board and kind of working toward the same solution. And I think that's what's happening right now. Are there other, you know, kind of emerging businesses and, and technologies that are similar to yours that we just don't hear about? I mean, it just shocks me that when we talk about what people are reporting and their ESG metrics, they do talk about water management. They sure. do talk about carbon, but they really should be talking about waste. What else is not really making it up there on that list that that should be? That's a good question. Um there are different technologies that are uh, kind of around you know, flare mitigation and kind of ways to use ways to use um, kind of that stranded energy that comes from that natural gas in the field. 
Um, there are a lot of interesting things that you can do with waste gas. We, we call it waste gas because that, you know, that gas is, is being, it's been, the reason it's being flared is because it costs more to get it to market than ultimately you can, you can get for it. But that, that uh, quote unquote waste energy can be a massive resource if we use it right. So I think the thing, I think the things that are interesting are these technologies that really attack that waste gas on a micro scale and kind of use that waste gas, you know, well to well and flare to flare. You can take away those flares one flare at a time and start using that energy for a beneficial purpose. I think those things are really, really interesting. The, um, but I think that the when when I look at kind of the you know the the real um, issues in the oil and gas industry environmentally, um, I think the biggest issues that we've got to deal with are number one, carbon footprint. I mean, we've got to figure out how to decarbonize, how make what we what we do cleaner uh, from a carbon perspective, um, and then it's also about um, reducing the risk of contamination where we work, right? And from my perspective, this is why I've always thought that the um, the focus on fracking as this big scary thing was misplaced, because the reality is uh, there's only a few specific geological instances where fracking is dangerous to groundwater. Um, fracking is generally done 10,000 feet below the Earth's surface. There's two miles of rock in between where where the fracking is occurring and where the groundwater is. So what you're doing on the surface of the Earth, which might be 100 feet of pretty porous soil between the surface of the Earth and the groundwater, what you're doing on the surface of the Earth is a lot more impactful and a lot more likely to contaminate. It's, it's riskier. The stuff that you're doing on the surface is much riskier to groundwater, much riskier to soil contamination than anything you're doing 10,000 feet below the Earth's surface. So the whole focus on whether fracking is going to kill everybody or not was sort of a distraction, in my view. And the oil industry, I think, probably did a did itself a disservice by dismissing it so much because it let that that narrative go on for so long. Um but fracking is really a pretty safe process, and with, you know, there's just a couple of, of exceptions where um, uh, where you've got the right geology to, to allow for contamination. But you've got to um, manage your waste right on the surface. You've got to, and then we've we've also got to think about how are we going to go back behind what we've done historically and clean up, right? And from my perspective, that you know, we we always say that the job's not done. The job's not done just when you drill the well and you produce the oil and gas, the job's really not done until you clean up after yourself, right? So you see a lot of older oil fields that have been abandoned. They might still have a pump jack out there. They might still have some tanks out there. There might be some soil contamination left. Um, we need to do a better job as an industry going out and cleaning up some of these legacy sites too. Um, I know there's you know, folks that you know, focus on plugging plugging and abandoning old wells. And that's important right now yeah. because that's, you know, that's business that OFS crews could get out there and be working on. That's um, absolutely right. Yeah. And there's funds available to do that. Right, there's, state funds. There's state funds. And I know some folks that are working um, to establish a fund at the federal level as well um, to, um, to put some funding behind, um, you know, cleaning up you know, cleaning up old oil field sites. And there's a lot of good work to be done there. I think uh, Congresswoman Torres Smalls has a bill um, from, that New from New Mexico. Yep. And um, Tim Tarpley on our team has been working uh, on that to make sure that, you know, that there's as much funding available for that plug and abandonment, um, yep. you know, to kind of get some of our people back to work. But <clears throat> it's such interesting perspective. You know, when you think about it, it's true. Like the the whole frack, you know, controversy, really, when you think about it, the impact at the surface really could be much more. Yeah. Um, and we did. We got behind on that frack conversation. We lost the narrative. And I worry that that's where we are with the word energy transition. And, you know, I've People say to me a lot, well, you know, you can't say that. You, you can't say energy transition because people will assume that it's transition away from oil and gas. You got to use the words that people are using, right? And yeah. own them. Yep. Um, and, you know, make them, make a definition for them that includes us. I, I feel strongly about that. And no, totally I mean, what is you. your thought on that? I mean, how, how, can you, how can you have an energy transition without the energy industry? I mean, just... It doesn't make any sense if you if you exclude the oil and gas industry from the conversation around the energy transition, right? Yeah. Um, we are going to be part and parcel of that, as you said after the after the debate on your in your post online. We're not going anywhere. 
we're going to be part of this. Um, we're going to be part of this um, uh, this industry and part of supplying energy to the world and kind of helping and helping the world run for as long as we need to. Um, and we, I totally encourage as much technological development as we can do to to make these processes cleaner and make these processes better. We're always we've got to be part of the solution, and we are. I agree with that 100%. I can't think of a better wrap-up than that. <laughs> um, so just quickly, I mean, I know your team, y'all are all working from home. Um, most of your people are, is that right? So Yeah, so we're at this point, we're kind of giving everybody the option. Uh-huh. We, we were um, it, a little ironic, but we had just signed a lease on a bigger suite at our corporate office right before this all hit. Um and so we now had, we were expecting to grow. We spent a lot of, we, we actually have, we had grown pretty substantially last year. And so we knew we needed more square footage. So we've got a nice big, you know, corporate suite and now we are actually smaller than we were. So, um, you know, so we've got plenty of room for people to socially distance in the office. We probably got about half the people in the office and we allow people to balance working from home, which is kind of nice. Um, yeah, it it provides a little for some, but you know I agree with you when you say it's okay to to execute a project with a team that already knows each other. That's fine. Some creative like development, getting together and figuring out how to approach a problem. We got to see some faces. No, that's right. <laughs> Collaboration and, and like creativity is hard, hard. over Zoom or over yeah. Teams. You find like if you're on a Teams meeting, you know as soon as there was a lull in the conversation you just kind of end it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, everybody, and you kind of log off. But if you're in a meeting, if you're in a room together, you get through those those times, you keep collaborating, you keep you keep throwing ideas out. I mean, it's been great to kind of be in the same place with some of my team over the last couple of weeks. We've just kind of, you know, there's been a lot of ideas, I think, that have been pent up and we're sparking new ones as we're getting back together. It's great to to see that and it's amazing how much we really missed that. I don't think we realized how much we missed it until we got back together. So um, I think that's really important. I do too. It's, it's easy to get rote stuff done at home. Like if you've got a stack of paperwork you need to you do, that. you can crank through that at the house. Um, but it's really tough to be innovative as a team in the way you need to when you're just working remotely. I agree. We, there are a few of us back in the office a couple of times a week and um, they're like, stop hugging me. You're not supposed to be hugging me. I'm like, I, just, I, I want to see you. I'm so happy. <laughs> It's funny. Well, Gabriel, thank you so much. I appreciate your leadership in the industry, how articulate you are about our role, you know, in in making and producing energy cleaner and safer, everything that Milestone's doing. And thank you again for your leadership on the PISA board. You know, we're just going to keep on working these same issues, right, from the OFS perspective. Well, look, I appreciate everything you guys are doing at PISA, too. I think your job is about to become even more important. Um, I agree. As we, um, as we potentially, um, depending on what happens next week, uh, I think your job is going to become even more important in Washington to make sure that these issues are understood, um, because I think it's very easy um, politically just to vilify an entire an entire industry, an entire group of people, um, and um, it's going to be a lot of work to make sure that these are understood because regulations are so powerful. And if they come down, if they come down on the wrong side without the requisite knowledge, it's uh, it can be dangerous, not just for our industry, but for you know, for the economy as well, and every and our customer, our ultimate customers that 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 need that need energy. So um, glad you guys are are there to do what you do. Thank you. I'm adopting my tagline that I came up with at 11 o'clock that night after the debate <laughs> when I said we aren't going anywhere. I love like it. that's our line. We aren't going anywhere. <laughs> I love right? it. Right. <laughs> that's what we're going to hang on to. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Um, so we're signing off here from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Um, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite channel. Thanks. Thanks everybody. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.